Otherwise, too, I would say it's good to review what your competitors are doing periodically, but you don't want to get super bogged down by it. I've also seen a problem where a lot of companies, as I mentioned earlier, just copy what their competitors are doing. And they're so, so obsessed with figuring out what their competitors are doing and trying to catch up or copy them that they forget they have their own product vision. And if your vision isn't to differentiate from your competitors, like there's no differentiating factors in there, that's a problem. So you definitely want to keep up to date with your competitors, see what they're doing and see where they're winning. But you also don't want to lose sight of what you're doing and why you win. Hello, and welcome to an episode of Dear Melissa from the Product Thinking Podcast. The lines are now open and we're ready to answer your most pressing product questions. Which prioritization framework would you recommend and why? Hi, Melissa. Do you have any suggestions on I'm developing a product strategy? Whoa, 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 whoa. <laughs> That's a lot of questions. All right, let's dive in. Hello, and welcome to another episode of Dear Melissa. Today, we've got three great questions for you spanning a whole range of topics. One, about doing competitor analysis. Another one about how do we pivot to being product-led? And then the last one about defining challenges in product strategy. So we're going to dive into those in just a moment. But I want to remind you that you can submit all of your questions to me too at dearmelissa.com. And then every other week, I'm answering these questions. So I will pick and choose a few of them to get back to you on. And I really enjoy that you are all submitting questions here. I think it not only helps me understand what you want to learn about, but it also helps other people who are listening and having the same journey. So they get some good answers too. So thank you so much for everybody who's written in. And if you would like your questions answered, remember dearmelissa.com. With that, let's go to the phones. First question. Hi, Melissa. Thank you for everything that you do. I'm so helped by your work every day and my work. So thank you for that. I am Ilva. I'm from Toronto. I'm living in Toronto at the moment. I'm from Sweden. Anyway, I am doing some competitor analysis here at my company, and I'm wondering if you have any smart tips in this area. So I can, of course, find competitors online, obviously, and read about them on their websites and so forth. But how do I know more about them, like their technology, their solutions, their current incoming features, their strategy? All of those things are internal. So how do project managers can spy on competitors to find out what differentiators and what disruptors are looming out there? Kind of stay up to date on a level that is more in-depth than just checking companies' website. Thank you. Thank you so much. What a great question. Competitor analysis is definitely important when we're doing product management. Now, I will say too, before we get into this, you don't want to just copy your competitors completely feature for feature. You want to figure out why some people win and why some people don't with their different features. So we do want to keep on top of that though. A couple different ways. One thing that I do whenever I go to understand a company and I didn't have a chance to talk to their customers yet, although I want to talk to their customers, I just peruse the web. If you go to G2 or Gartner, there are usually a lot of reviews from customers about those different products. For example, when I was joining the board of Forsta, I went and read all the reviews from people on Forsta on G2. I read about their competitors. And a lot of people do reference in those reviews too what they love and what they hate about that product compared to other competitors. So that's awesome because that gives you a place to 
immediately start, try to dig in a little deeper, figure out what's going on. So I really love reading reviews that are just online, and there's usually a lot of them too. Another thing that you could do is look up at YouTube tutorials. So a lot of companies actually do demos and tutorials, and then they post them on YouTube. That's a great way to go see what their products look like, how people are using them, how they pitch them, how they sell them. Head over to YouTube. Lastly, sign up for a demo if you can. I would go and just use like my Gmail address or a different email address to sign up for a demo and see what it's like. Pretend that you're going to buy their product. A lot of people do this. That's how we find out what's going on there. So I would really try that. Just, you know, use a different email address. Say you're from a different company. See if you can get a sales demo. A lot of people will be doing sales demos for that and give that a shot as well. So sign up for the demo. Try to get in there. Another one too, if you're talking to your customers and they bring out how a competitor does things, ask them if they have access to that competitor and if you could see it. So go to the sales team, sit with them and say, who are the new leads we're trying to get? And are they switching from competitors? Can we sit with them and see what they like better about the other competitors? Can we call them and and sit with them and have them like screen share and figure out what they can do? I've done this a lot with sales teams and usually people are happy to share what they like about competitors, what they don't like about your product. So that's a great way to get up to speed on that as well. I'd look at those types of things first to see (laughs) if you could do that, see if you could spy on your competitors. And when you're trying to stay up to date too, it's hard. I have a lot of people who subscribe to Google alerts in the industry or about competitors. So if they're going to release something new, you can do Google alerts and be notified like, hey, a new feature is coming out from our major competitor. We should get on that. Things like that will keep you there so you don't feel like you have to just go search all the time, all the time, all the time. Otherwise too, I would say it's good to review what your competitors are doing periodically, but you don't want to get super bogged down by it. I've also seen a problem where a lot of companies, as I mentioned earlier, just copy what their competitors are doing. And they're so, so obsessed with figuring out what their competitors are doing and trying to catch up or copy them that they forget they have their own product vision. And if your vision isn't to differentiate from your competitors, like there's no differentiating factors in there, that's a problem. So you definitely want to keep up to date with your competitors, see what they're doing and see where they're winning. But you also don't want to lose sight of what you're doing and why you win. It's not a game of just copy whatever is out there. And I have personally worked for a lot of companies that have done that, just copying whatever's out there. You want to make sure that you're staying true to your vision, but you're taking good ideas where they do come. And when people say they like something better, got to respond to that. So definitely good to do competitor analysis, but don't let it consume your whole day, right? Definitely set some time for it, probably every quarter, a couple hours to peruse and figure out what's going on. Those things are absolutely important, but remember to stay true to your vision. All right. Second question, dear Melissa, I work for a successful, profitable fintech, a bank currently undergoing hypergrowth. We operate in a scrum environment with multiple releases a day across a growing number of teams, 12 at last count. The company is trying to pivot to being product-led while ensuring that all regulation governance requirements are met. To this end, they have adopted StageGate, which seems to me to be waterfall in a box, but I have not encountered it before. What is your experience with StageGate? Am I just being stubborn and intractable by thinking that adopting StageGate is the opposite of creating a product-led organization? Or for example, a risk-led organization? Great question. So stage gates are actually good. They're fine. You want stage gates, but I guess also it depends on how you're developing your stage gates. So let me tell you what good looks like, because I don't know what your stage gates look like. And you could probably refine it to be here. 
when I was at Athena Health, we had to implement stage gates and that was good. It was about how we were going to roll out products and testing to larger audiences. You know, we worked in the medical field. We were serving doctors and nurses in hospitals. When you do a big bang release for doctors and nurses in hospitals and they don't know how to use it or something goes wrong, like that's somebody's life on the line. So you don't do that. So we didn't do that. And what we had to do was refigure our stage gates so that we could still be agile, still be testing things, but we were making sure that we weren't risking people's lives. And that is good practice in anything that is highly regulatory. Amazon and Google can just throw things out there, A-B test it. It's usually not harming anybody. Sometimes I'm sure they have riskier things. But when you're in a regulatory environment, you can't do that. And that's totally fine. It doesn't mean that you're not agile. Remember, agile is about responding to change. So we want to design our stage gates so that we are able to learn and respond to change. So what did we do? We broke things into different stages of development for our product. So, you know, you had in development, but then the first release would probably be around an experiment that we were doing. So we would call it experimentation phase, which meant there was like a 90% chance we're not sure that this is going to go through. We told that to sales. We told that to anybody who may have been reviewing it. We said, we're just getting feedback at this stage. It's not going live. Totally cool. Everybody around the organization is aligned by that. And then we had alpha, beta, and generally available. Alpha meant that we were testing things with a couple hospitals or a couple doctors just to make sure it worked. The UX was good. The solution looked really nice. It was intuitive and it solved the problem. That's what we were really looking for. Still a chance that we're not going to release that at the end of the day. We're being iterative. We're going to refine it after that, get that feedback. But we're definitely not releasing that solution, even though it was coded and it was pretty much a full solution. That doesn't get released to everybody because we don't know if it solves our problems yet. We have to test it. We have to make sure people are using it correctly. And we want to iterate on it in a low-risk way so that we can not have an epic fail if it's not working by releasing it to everybody. Beta meant it was pretty good to go and we're pressure testing it at scale and making sure that things worked. So then we would release it to a growing number of people, probably like 10 to 20% of the customers that we had. And then GA meant it's generally available for everybody. It's released to everybody. Now, when you're thinking about these stage gates, we're learning along the way. They were designed to learn. They weren't designed to like block people's iterations or momentum from the product team. It's designed for the product team to learn. But it also does reduce the risk of the whole organization, which is any organization like you in a bank or in a highly regulated industry, you're going to have to deal with that. And that's totally fine. We just work around those constraints. So we are basically saying that in alpha mode, we're testing, we're making sure everything's good. We're making sure it's compliant. We're making sure that everything is great. And we're doing that as well in experiment mode, but this is the time to catch anything that might not be there. And that's probably what your regulation people are looking for as well. What's their opportunity to catch things before it goes live to everybody? What I would do, and I don't know, like I said, don't know what your stage gates look like, but if they don't sound like that, sit down with your regulatory team and your sales team and everybody else. and start to define that, start to define it from a product perspective of how you can learn and how you can manage risk while learning, because you want to make sure that they're not preventing you from releasing it to anybody or testing it with anybody. That's bad. So if you have a stage gate like that, that wouldn't be great because that means that you're not getting the feedback you need to make sure it's successful. So I would sit down and discuss like what you need from your end, what they need from their end, and try to come up with a good compromise so that you can test it in smaller, less risky ways. So don't 
think that this is just a risk-led organization. There is risk inherent in every organization. There's a risk of failure. But when you are in a highly regulated industry like banks, healthcare, I've worked with insurance companies, pharmaceutical companies, all of those things. Yeah, you've got like a lot more on the line here. So you're going to definitely have requirements and regulatory things that you have to be beholden to. And that's cool. Like we just accept that they're there, but you want to look at those two as how do they help me manage risk, not just how are they blockers for everything that I possibly do. And good leaders in organizations as well see compliance like that. They see compliance as, you know, things you have to do and lawyers as people who advise on risk, but at the end of the day, it is your decision and the CEO's decision and leader's decisions about how much risk you're willing to take on. Try to think about stage gates as an opportunity to learn in low risk ways rather than as handcuffs for you not being agile. Agile is all about getting things in front of customers. So as long as your stage gates don't prevent that, you're okay. Did you know I have a course for product managers that you could take? It's called Product Institute. Over the past seven years, I've been working with individuals, teams, and companies to upskill their product chops through my fully online school. We have an ever-growing list of courses to help you work through your current product dilemma. Visit productinstitute.com and learn to think like a great product manager. Use code THINKING to save $200 at checkout on our premier course, Product Management Foundations. All right, last question we've got for today. My current challenge is to align the company around a clear product strategy, and I just got the green light to apply your frameworks to do so. I'm a VP of product. Our product team is around 70 people, organized into eight squads, each with its own domain, onboarding, operations, recurrence, churn, etc. In your experience, would it make sense for each squad to have its own challenge? Or should there be one or two challenges for the entire product area? Of course, I'm using challenge as defined in several of your blog posts on product strategy. Thank you for putting out such great stuff and looking forward to hearing from you. All right. Well, good question. And I want to say too that I've changed this a bit over the years and the most updated version on my thinking of this is in my book, Escaping the Build Trap. And I just saw your little note that you got it in just a few days in Chile. That's pretty awesome. I really hope you enjoy it. So when I started writing these blog posts about product strategy, I was following terminology that was very beholden to, well, that was developed for Toyota Kata. And Toyota Kata still underlies everything that I talk about when it comes to strategy and the product kata. And what they talk about in Kata is that you have this challenge, which is your overall really lofty goal. And you've got a smaller goal called a target condition. And if you solve several target conditions, it should allow you to reach your challenge. So it's basically like taking the big goal, breaking up into smaller goals. And all the target conditions move you closer to reaching your challenge. When I have developed, like deployed this in organizations, and when we have actually written out strategy, I find that there's actually like about two levels of challenges in organizations. And that's what I talk about in the strategy framework. So we have our vision of where the company is going. Then we have our strategic intents, which are the challenges on a business level. So what are the really lofty pushes that we're going to make as a business that we want to solve to further our journey to the challenge? So these are things that are really lofty, like expanding geographically, completely revamping parts of the business to innovate or go after something new, solving new problems that we haven't solved yet, like really, really lofty business challenges that don't just affect the product team. They also affect the sales team, the marketing team, everybody. So you're all aligned under strategic intents across the organization, which is awesome. 
because then it stops that infighting between, you know, sales and marketing and product. And I have these goals and you have this goals. It's like, no, we all have the same goals. And that's how a company should run. So underneath that, though, now we go into just our product strategy and sales has their strategy, marketing has their strategy, and they should all align. But like, here's our product strategy of what we're going to build. Now we've got, if you, you are a product manager on a team, let's say, your challenge is going to be a product initiative. And that's what are the problems that we can solve from a product standpoint, from a software standpoint for our customers. And these are going to be really large push initiatives that are very problem focused. And that is then going to be broken down into the outcomes that you want to solve from a feature perspective and the different solutions and features in the team that will solve and roll up into that challenge. Now, when you think about the team level product initiatives, which are the challenges, so usually they're set by VPs of product and directors of product with input from the teams on where to go. They're big pushes. And usually multiple teams will roll up into that product initiative. You could think that it could span one, two, three, four teams. That's normal. Like you want to make sure that multiple pushes on the product team are rolling up into a really good, big push on a product perspective. So that's really where you want to look at. And then those roll up into the strategic intent. So if you've got three initiatives, they should align back to strategic intents. They can align to multiple strategic intents. So it's totally fine if you're like, hey, this initiative will increase our retention of XYZ type customer, but it's also going to open us up into this new market that we're trying to move into. And we believe that we can get like $800 million of new sales for that. That'd be great. $800 million of new sales. You get what I'm saying. Like it rolls up to multiple initiatives. That's okay. That just makes, you know, you want to prioritize effort into that. Definitely. Depending on how long it's actually going to take. That's how I would think about how things roll up. Now at the strategic intent level, at the company level, and this is a little controversial, but I say that you can't really have more than three. Why? These are huge, lofty, lofty goals for the business. It's like, What's organizing a huge part of your budget, your strategic budget? I'm not talking about like everyday things. I'm not talking about operational stuff. I'm not talking about tech debt. I'm not talking about keeping the lights on. This is strategic pushes and what we're allocating for a budget towards a strategic push across the entire organization. That's what strategic intents are. The stuff about like tech debt, other things, those are operational and there should be a portion of your budget associated to it, but that's a larger conversation about portfolio planning of how much money do we want to spend on strategic stuff versus how much money do we have to spend fixing our things. Once you go through that, now we look at the strategic intents, which are purely strategy-based, like growing our company. Now, when you look at those, three is a lot for a company. Three is normal. I've seen a lot of companies do six or seven. I've seen them do six or seven across like many different types of organizations in the company, and they don't have anything overarching. It's going to distract people. You're going to create a lot of infighting between different divisions in your organization. Like you want to keep it simple. You want people focused. And that's the key to this framework is to provide focus. What are we not doing? What should we be working on? And you should only change it when you reach that goal. And I would say like update it immediately, like put another goal in there, have something waiting in the wings or like, and you finish that initiative, it worked, it's great. Or when something massive happens, like things like COVID, now you're going to have to probably change your strategic intent. So that's totally fine. But like you need to do it intentionally. That's why they're called intense. And you have to do it in a way where it focuses the entire company. So you as a VP of product should be able to go over to the VP of sales and have a great conversation about where you're focusing on 
to help them unlock the sales that reach those company goals. And you should all be aligned around the same metrics there and the same goals there. And what you'll see is it brings the whole executive team together. So that's really what I want you to think about. And it sounds like you are a company that is very software focused. So think about how software can enable these strategic intents. Think about how it enables the business to do better and be better. That's really a secret for success here. All right, that's it for this episode of Dear Melissa. And I wanna remind you, leave me some questions. We have this wonderful voicemail feature and I love it when you can leave me a voicemail. And I will also say that right now we're trying to get more of them, so we're prioritizing them. So if you want your question answered faster, please leave me a voicemail and let me know what you're thinking what you got questions on. So dial in, let us know, go to dearmelissa.com and definitely do that. And if you enjoyed our podcast as well, we really appreciate it. If you could leave us a review on Apple podcasts, head over there, give us a good review and we will really, really appreciate it. In the meantime, I hope you guys have a great week and we will be back next Wednesday with another episode of the product thinking podcast.